Sorting out exactly how the soul is an image of the Trinity, according to St. Thomas, is a complicated matter. Besides the inherent difficulty in understanding the interior processions in the human soul, and seeing how these processions manifest procession in God himself, there is an added complexity in the account. St. Thomas talks about two distinct ways in which the soul functions as an image of the Trinity. First, the procession of word and love in the human soul, especially when the soul knows and loves itself, is an analogy for the procession of the divine word, that is the Son, and the divine love, that is the Holy Spirit. St. Thomas calls this the likeness of the natural image, or the image of creation, referencing the Genesis text quoted above. Second, the soul is an image of the Trinity insofar as it is assimilated or transformed into the persons of the Trinity by being objectively united to them by graced acts of knowledge and love. This is called the image of recreation. The scriptural basis for this notion of image is found in the New Testament, notably 2 Corinthians 3.18, quote, but we beholding the glory of the Lord with open face are transformed into the same image. Now the aim of this paper is to explain and clarify how St. Thomas understands these two ways the soul functions as an imago Dei, and to show how the soul's objective union with the divine persons is a more perfect image of God, one that builds on the less perfect image, that is the procession of the word and love in the soul, as an analogy for the divine procession and distinction of persons in God. There's actually a third level that you could grant too. There's nature, grace, and glory, but I'm gonna focus really on nature and grace, and Thomas seems to himself focus mainly on those two. So the paper has three parts. In part one, I will sketch St. Thomas's basic understanding of what is meant by the soul as an image of God and of the Trinity specifically. In part two, I will discuss a couple of preliminary texts where St. Thomas describes different levels of the soul as an, as an image of the Trinity according to nature and grace. Now, one text is from De Potentia, Question 9, Article 9, and the other one is from De Veritate, Question 10, Article 7. Looking at these texts will enable us to raise a question about the relation between the image according to nature and the image according to grace. Part three will focus on that relation between the image according to nature and the image according to grace, as found in the Summa Theologiae, drawing upon some of the features of the image that are illuminated by St. Thomas's Trinitarian theology. Okay, so part one, an outline of the Imago. What exactly do we mean by the term image, and how is man made to the image of God? According to Thomas, an image is a certain kind of likeness, but not every likeness is an image. Now, there are two features that especially characterize an image. First, it is a likeness that is copied from the thing of which it is an image. Second feature is, it's a likeness that represents the species of the thing. So first, an image is a likeness that is copied from or derived from something else, 
and is therefore made to imitate the thing of which it is an image. An egg, this is Thomas's example, an egg is not said to be an image of another egg, even though it looks just the same. All right, there's A, A, and then there's A, you know, or different sizes. That's a joke, I know it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> Similarly, one man is not said to be an image of another man simply because he looks similar. Of course, a man is sometimes said to be the spitting image of his father, but that is because the son is in some sense made to be like his father. It is also worth noting that an image does not need to be equal to the original of which it is a copy. We say that a person's reflection in a mirror is an image, even though it falls short of the original. Now, the second feature of an image is that it is more than simply a generic likeness. It is a likeness that represents the species of, of something. So although animals and plants and non-living substances bear some likeness to God as their creator, they are not said to be images of God, but only vestiges of God his tracks or footprints. As creatures, they manifest the presence of God, the Creator, in a general way, but they do not rise to the level of representing the species. St. Thomas argues that because of man's rational nature, possessing an intellect and a will, he is able to represent the species of God. Now, to say that an image represents the species obviously does not mean that the image is of the very same species as the thing it images. But it does mean that, the, that an image captures or represents the form or shape of something. He gives the well-known example of a coin which can be said to bear the image of the king because the image is the same outward shape or form as the original. Of course, man is said to be in the image of God, not in an outward or material way, since God is altogether spiritual and immaterial. But he does bear the image of God because his intellectual nature sufficiently represents or imitates the same form or species as the divine nature, like a coin that bears the image of Cain. Since man is distinguished from the beast by his rational soul, it is within the soul that one finds the image of the Trinity. And St. Thomas says that, quote, God himself placed in man a spiritual image of himself, end quote. Indeed, St. Thomas says that the image of God is in man because of his mind, a term that is kind of a broad term that encompasses both intellect and will. But how is the soul said to be an image of the Trinity? St. Thomas identifies the image of the Trinity with the interior processions of word and love in the soul. This is a quotation from question 93, article six of the Prima Pars, so quote. The uncreated Trinity is distinguished by the procession of the word from the speaker and of love from both of these, as we have seen, reference to the treatment of the Trinity. So we may say that in rational creatures wherein we find a procession of the word and the intellect and a procession of love and the will, there exists an image of the uncreated trinity by a certain representation of the species." End quote. Now the interior processions of word and love bear a formal likeness to the processions of the word and love in God, the word being another name for the Son and love another name for the Holy Spirit. 
St. Thomas argues, moreover, that the image of the Trinity is found principally in the acts of the soul and only secondarily in his powers and habits. This is because it is only by actual thought that a word is produced within the soul. And it is only through the word that proceeds from the intellect that there is a procession of love in the will. Now here's another quote. Now the divine persons are distinct from each other by reason of the procession of the word from the speaker and the procession of love connecting both. But in our soul, word cannot exist without actual thought, as Augustine says. Therefore, first and chiefly, the image of the Trinity is to be found in the acts of the soul. That is, inasmuch as from the knowledge which we possess by actual thought, we form an internal word and thence break forth into love." End quote. So, man is made in the image of the Trinity through his soul, and more specifically the mind, and principally in the acts of the soul, rather than in its habits or powers. So, uh, part two is a preliminary look at the levels of the Imago. Now, St. Thomas' teaching on the, Imago, on the Imago also includes a clear sense that the image admits of different, uh, different degrees, nature, grace, and glory. Although again, mainly I'm gonna focus on the image according to nature and the image according to grace. Now St. Thomas's lengthiest treatment of the Imago is found in Summa Theologiae Prima Pars question 93. I've already quoted from that question. But the account there is complex and difficult. So I wanna begin by looking at St. Thomas's account of the Imago the levels of the Imago in De Potentia and De Veritate. So in De Potentia question 9, article 9, St. Thomas presents the image according to nature and the image according to grace in a fairly simple and straightforward way. The image according to nature is based on a likeness or similarity of interior operations. Because the rational creature alone can understand and love himself, consequently produces his own interior word and love, man represents the Trinity by a likeness that rises to the level of an image because it represents the species of the Trinity. It represents the form or species of the Trinity in the sense that the formal structure of the interior processions of word and love in the soul is similar to the formal structure or order of the processions of word and love in God. And there's not, not really a structure in God. God's simple, but there's a kind of order of the processions. Now, since every man is capable of knowing and loving himself and produces his own interior word and love, this likeness of the Trinity is called uh, the likeness of the natural image. Of course, it's also called, as I mentioned already, the image of creation because it is meant to explain the line from Genesis, let us make man to our own image. Now, the image according to grace, um, as described in, in De Potentia 9.9, does not focus on a likeness of interior operations, but on what he calls a unity of the object. Since the saints understand and love God, there is what St. Thomas calls, quote, conformity of union. Because they know and love the same thing that God knows uh, and loves. This likeness of the Trinity is called the image of recreation. And again, that's the 
the quote from 2 Corinthians 3.18 that provides the scriptural basis. We, beholding the glory of the Lord with open face, are transformed into the same image. So a few simple observations. First, Thomas sees the basis for asserting two distinct ways that man is made in the image of the Trinity as coming from scripture, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Second, the description of these two images seems to be distinct and unrelated to one another. One account focuses, focuses on similarity of operation, the other on sameness of object. And one of the aims of this paper is to show how these two images are in fact related to one another and that the image according to grace presupposes and perfects the image according to nature. So I want to, I want to bring the two together in other words. Now there's perhaps already some hint of their relation insofar as the names of these two images in the De Potentia text, the image of creation, the image of recreation, suggests some sort of relation between them. So let's now turn briefly to De Veritate Question 10, Article 7, another text that's, I think, simpler and more straightforward. And in that text, St. Thomas presents a similar account of the two ways in which man is made in the image of God. Now this article raises the question of whether the image of the Trinity is found in the mind insofar as it knows temporal things or only insofar as it knows eternal things. And that, that question comes from St. Augustine's De Trinitate. So Thomas approaches this question by asking whether an image of God is found in the soul according to three different objects of the mind. Is the image of God found in the mind when it knows material things? Is the image of God found in the mind insofar as it knows itself? And is the image of God found, found in man insofar as it knows God? Now in answering these questions, St. Thomas uses different terms to refer to the image of nature and grace that we've already discussed. He calls the image of na nature, here in this text, he calls the image of nature a likeness according to analogy, and the image of grace is called a likeness according to conformation. Now this distinction between the two ways the Imago is found in the mind is essentially the same as the distinction made in De Potentia Question 9, Article 9. The image according to analogy is based on a similarity between the operations in the human mind and the operations in God. The image according to confirmation is based on the unity of object. Since the mind becomes assimilated to the object known, when the mind knows and loves God as an object, it is conformed to the divine persons. Now in answering his question, St. Thomas argues that there is no image of the Trinity found in the mind when it knows material things. But there is an image of the Trinity according to analogy when the mind knows itself, and an image according to confirmation when it knows God. Here's a brief text where he puts those two together, and I quote, in the knowledge by which our mind knows itself, there is a representation of the uncreated trinity according to analogy, inasmuch as the mind knowing itself in this way produces a word expressing itself, and love proceeds from both of these. Just as the Father, speaking himself, has begotten his word from eternity, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from both. But in that knowledge by which the mind knows God himself, the mind becomes conformed to God, 
just as every knower as such is assimilated to the thing known. This text, like the De Potentio, seems largely to contrast two distinct ways in which the soul is an image of the Trinity. Are these two images related in some way? If so, how are they related? Now, in the remainder of this article in, in the De Veritate, St. Thomas gives some indication of how these two are related by arguing that the image according to conformity is prior to the image according to analogy. Here's what he says. Now the likeness, which is by conformity to its object, as sight to color, is greater than that which is by analogy as sight to the understanding, which is similarly compared to its objects. Consequently, the likeness of the Trinity is more expressive, or it could be translated clearer, in the mind insofar as it knows God than insofar as it knows <coughs> itself. Therefore, properly speaking, the image of the Trinity is in the mind first and foremost, insofar as the mind knows God. But it is there in a certain way, and secondarily, insofar as the mind knows itself. And chiefly, when it considers itself as the image of God. And thus, its consideration does not stop with itself, but proceeds to God. So what's interesting to see here is that St. Thomas is not only arguing that the image according to conformity is superior to the image according to analogy, but that the latter is in some way ordered toward the former. Right? So chief, that image according to analogy is chiefly an image when, in looking at that image, you recognize that it is an image. So the soul's knowledge and love of itself bears a formal likeness to the Trinitarian processions but this formal likeness is the character of an image chief, chiefly insofar as it leads one on to the knowledge of the Trinity as an object. So that's a key insight, one that will feature prominently in the Summa Theologiae where we find St. Thomas's most developed treatment of the levels of the Imago. So let's turn to that now to look more closely at the relation between the image according to analogy and the image according to conformation. Part three, the image according to nature and grace in the Summa Theologiae. Now the place to begin in Summa is Summa Theologiae Primipar's question 93, article four, where St. Thomas asks whether the image of God is found in all men. This question serves as the occasion to describe the different levels of the Imago. <coughs> this is a since man is said to be the image of God by reason of his intellectual nature, he is most perfectly like God according to that in which he can best imitate God in his intellectual nature. Now the intellectual nature imitates God chiefly in this, that God understands and loves himself. Wherefore, we see that the image of God is in man in three ways. First, inasmuch as man possesses a natural aptitude for understanding and loving God. And this aptitude consists in the very nature of the mind, which is common to all men. Secondly, inasmuch as man actually and habitually knows and loves God, though imperfectly, and this image consists in the conformity of grace. Thirdly, inasmuch as man knows and loves God perfectly, and this image consists in the likeness of glory. Wherefore, on the words, 
The light of thy countenance, O Lord, is signed upon us. That's from Psalms 4-7. The gloss distinguishes a threefold image of creation, recreation, and likeness. The first is found in all men, the second only in the just, and the third only in the blessed. End quote. Now, this is a complicated text, and there's a lot packed in here. For the moment, I would like to focus on how St. Thomas describes the image according to nature in this text. What's interesting, I think, is it seems to blend together the two ways that he had previously described the soul as a likeness of God. That is, it blends together the likeness by analogy of operation and the likeness by objective union. Although the image according to nature consists in the very nature of the mind, that nature is understood as something oriented toward God as an object. It's a natural aptitude to know and love God. <clears throat> Consequently, his account of the soul as the image according to nature is now seen as more clearly ordered toward the image according to grace as potency to act. Now, <clears throat> you might wonder, do we see the same emphasis on the object when St. Thomas applies the notion of the imago to the distinction of persons in the Trinity. So that text I just quoted was kind of focusing on the nature of God but not bringing in the persons. So I think when we turn to how it's applied to the persons of the Trinity, I think we do see an emphasis upon the object. So to see this, we should turn to question 93.8 where Thomas asks whether the image of the Trinity is in the soul only by comparison to God as object. In that article, St. Thomas reiterates that the divine persons are distinguished from each other according to the procession of the divine word from the divine speaker and the procession of divine love from both of them. St. Thomas then points out that the divine processions come forth from God insofar as God knows and loves himself as object. So, that's a brief quote. The word of God is born of God according to the knowledge of himself. And love proceeds from God insofar as he loves himself. End quote. And Thomas gives a reason for prioritizing the object of knowledge and love. It is manifest, he says, that the diversity of objects diversifies the species of word and love. So just as the interior word conceived from the knowledge of a stone is not the same species as a word conceived of a horse or a man. And likewise, the love brought forth from each of these is specifically different. So it's the diversity of the object that's going to diversify the word and the love brought forth. So having pointed that out, that the object diversifies the procession of word and love, St. Thomas concludes that the image of the Trinity in the soul must have God as its object. I quote, Hence the divine image is found in man according to the word conceived from the knowledge of God and according to the love derived therefrom. Thus the image of God is found in the soul insofar as the soul turns to God or was born to turn to God, not, not to say so, um, so let me just repeat that. The image of God is found in the soul insofar as the soul turns to God or was born to turn to God. So the image of God in the soul has God as its object, 
or at least was born with an orientation toward God. This fits with Thomas's earlier claim in question 93.4 that the natural image of the Trinity consists in a natural aptitude to know and love God, a kind of directional potency toward the image of grace. But what has become of St. Thomas's initial description of the image according to nature by way of analogy? That is, the soul's knowledge and love of self and its corresponding procession of word and love. That was the focus in, that, in the first two um, texts from the De Potentia and De Veritate. The soul's knowledge and love of itself as an image. Has St. Thomas abandoned self-love and self-love and self, sorry, has St. Thomas abandoned self-knowledge and self-love as a natural image of the Trinity? We get an answer to this question in the final part of question 93, article 8, where St. Thomas distinguishes between two ways in which the mind can be said to turn toward God. And I quote, Now the mind turns towards something in two ways, directly and immediately, or indirectly and immediately, as when someone seeing the image of a, man, of a man in a mirror is said to be turned toward that man. And therefore, Augustine says in De Trinitate, Book 14, quote, the mind remembers itself, understands itself, and loves itself. If we perceive this, we perceive a trinity, not yet God, but already the image of God. That's end quote of the quote inside the quote. Um, but, finishing the quotation from Thomas, but this is not because the mind turns towards itself absolutely, but insofar as it can further turn toward God. End quote. So, what does that mean? So we, we see, I think, that for Thomas, the, the soul's knowledge and love of itself is said to be an image of God but only an image insofar as it points toward God or makes it possible for the mind to turn toward God. So if it just rests in itself, it's not really, strictly speaking, an image. Indeed, St. Thomas is indicating that it belongs to an image as image to point the way to the original of which it is the image. Of course, the example of the reflection in a mirror is a, con a conspicuous example of an image that is recognized immediately as an image. I mean, I guess you maybe see this in sci-fi movies. If you have a, a mirror that's so perfect, you don't even notice it's a mirror. <coughs> the mirror I'm looking in the, at home doesn't have that quality. So, um, anyway. so the same is true of the image of the king or the, the former president on a coin or the image of Hercules in bronze or marble. I think Thomas is really suggesting that all images as images point towards the things they imitate in some way, although obviously in varying degrees. So the likeness according to analogy found in the very nature of the mind and its corresponding operations and interior processions naturally leads the mind toward a knowledge of the trinity of persons. At this point, one might wonder whether we have overstated the case for the natural image. If the procession of word and love in the human soul is an image of the Trinity, precisely because it naturally leads the mind to see the procession of the word and love in God himself, this suggests that the mind can arrive at the existence of the Trinity by natural reason alone. 
But according to St. Thomas, natural reason is unable to demonstrate the distinction of persons in the Trinity. That presupposes faith. Now, St. Thomas actually anticipates this very difficulty in question 93. It's one of the objections that he raises against the idea that there is an image of the Trinity in man. So here's the way he phrases the objection. Quote, an image leads to the, to the knowledge of that thing of which it is the image. Therefore, if there is in man the image of God as the Trinity of persons, since man can know himself by his natural reason, it follows that by natural reason man could know the Trinity of divine persons, which is false, as shown above. End quote. Now that reference as shown above is to question 32, article 1 of the treatise on the Trinity, where Thomas argues that natural reason is incapable of demonstrating the Trinity. In any case, St. Thomas answers the objection here in question 93 by granting that the image of God and man would lead to the knowledge of the Trinity if the image of God and man were a perfect image. So, the general principle that an image as image naturally leads to a knowledge of the thing it imitates is sound. But if the image is an imperfect image, it does not lead the mind to the thing it imitates with necessity. As it is, the mind is, mind is unable to arrive at a knowledge of the Trinity apart from supernatural faith. What then does it mean to speak of a natural aptitude to know the Trinity? One which can help lead to a knowledge of the Trinity, but only if the mind is elevated by supernatural faith. Now, I think one can see the suitability of calling the image according to nature a natural aptitude to know the persons of the Trinity, um, if you see how St. Thomas uses the interior processions within the soul in his treatment of the Trinity. Although the existence of interior processions within God is itself a matter of faith, the interior processions of word and love in the human soul play an essential role in manifesting the interior processions in God, which gives, which gives I think, a greater appreciation of why the image according to nature is described as a natural aptitude to know the persons of the Trinity. So the treatment of the Trinity in the Summa begins with procession because the divine persons are distinguished by relations of origin. And relations of origin presuppose procession in God. Scripture and the creed use names that signify procession in God. But the point in Sacra Doctrina is to understand what the faith reveals. When we go to do that, though, we are faced almost immediately with various ways that procession can be misunderstood, notably the Arian and Sabellian heresies. Both of these heresies mistakenly, even though they're kind of opposite heresies, right? one sort of obliterates uh, the distinction in God and turns the second and third person into creatures, and the other one sort of turns the distinction into only a distinction of reason, not a real distinction. The key thing here is that both of these heresies mistakenly take procession to refer to an outward act, a procession ad extra. As a consequence, both deny a distinction of persons within God. Now, since procession necessarily presupposes action, the only remaining alternative is to admit that there is an internal procession an internal act that remains within the agent. 
Here's where the soul as an image of the Trinity comes into play, helping us to see the processions in God through a likeness in the rational creature. The interior processions of word and love provide an entry point. Indeed, for Thomas, it's the entry point, enabling us to see how there can, how there can be procession in God, and therefore how the divine persons can be distinguished. Now, there's actually some really strong text in the De Potentia, I won't quote it here, where he basically says, there's no other way to introduce or insert or find a procession in God apart from the interior processions that we know to exist in the human soul. So, the image according to nature, the analogy of interior processions in the soul, provides the most apt or suitable likeness by which we can understand the divine processions. Now, time does not permit a detailed tra treatment of the interior word in the soul, or of the love brought forth from the will when, it, when, it's, when it's operating. Suffice it to say that St. Thomas relies on the soul's interior processions of word and love as the only suitable image of divine procession. Indeed, <clears throat> without this image, the science of sacred theology has no clear way of moving forward, and the Arian and Sabellian heresies would always be knocking at the door. St. Thomas's account of the processions of God show how the image according to nature is oriented toward the image according to grace, precisely because it is an indispensable aid to understanding the object of our faith, the Most Holy Trinity. And insofar as supernatural faith relies on this image, we see how the image according to grace presupposes or builds on the image according to nature. Let me conclude with a brief account of the image according to grace. Now, St. Thomas indicates that the image according, of God according to grace entails actually and, and habitually knowing and loving God, as opposed to the aptitude to know and love God, or the ability to turn to God. In this sense, the knowledge of the Trinity obtained by a simple faith in the creed, and in the science of sacred doctrine acquired by study, see that in the Summa, is surely included in the image according to grace insofar as faith is a supernatural elevation of man's nature. Nonetheless, what St. Thomas principally has in mind by the image of recreation is a knowledge and love of God that presupposes sanctifying grace, namely the very indwelling of the persons of the Trinity which he explains in his treatment of the divine missions in Summa Theologiae, Prima Paris, question 43. It's at the very, very end of the treatise of the Trinity. Now his account of the indwelling focuses on the presence of the divine persons in a manner that is more intimate and more immediate than what is attainable by faith alone, as faith absent uh, sanctifying grace and charity. Now, the indwelling of the divine persons is a complicated subject that could easily merit a separate paper, so I will limit myself to a couple of key points. To see that Thomas has the divine indwelling in mind when talking about the image of grace, we need to look at a couple of passages earlier in the Summa. The first is from Prima Paris, question 8, article 1, 
Bruce St. Thomas outlines the way that God is present in the world. And I quote, God is said to be in a thing in two ways, in one way through the mode of an efficient cause, and thus he is in all things created by him. In another way is the object of operation is in the operator, which is proper to the operations of the soul, according as the thing known is in the knower and the thing desired is in the one desiring. In the second way, God is especially in the rational, the rational creature that knows and loves him actually or habitually. And because the rational creature has this by grace, as will be shown later, he is said to be thus in the saints by grace. End quote. So notice here the emphasis on God's presence in the soul as an object, but only in the saints who know him actually and habitually. So that language fits with Thomas's description of the image according to grace in question 93, article 4, that we looked at earlier. So Thomas takes this up again later in the Summa. Uh, now the editors of the standard English edition of the Summa insert a reference to question 12, which focuses mainly on the beatific vision. But I think what Thomas has in mind is found in question 43 on the divine missions. The key text, I think, to see that is question 43, article 3, which is on the invisible missions of the divine persons as an effect of sanctifying grace. So here's the text. This is another quotation. There is one common mode by which God is in all things by his essence, power, and presence as the cause existing in the effects, in the effects participating in his goodness. Above this common mode, however, there is one special mode that belongs to the rational creature in which God is said to be present as the thing known is in the knower and the thing loved in the lover. And because by knowing and loving, the rational creature by his operation attains to God himself, according to the special mode, God is not only said to be in the, crack of the rational creature, but also to dwell in him as in his own temple. So no other effect can be the reason why the divine person is in the rational creature in a new mode, except sanctifying grace. Whence it is only according to sanctifying grace that the divine person is sent and proceeds temporally." End quote. So I, I think we can clearly recognize that St. Thomas is describing what he will later call the image of God according to grace, which is found in the saints who are united to God as an object, but not an object that is known and loved in the ordinary way. This special mode of the divine presence exceeds the way that God is an object by natural theology, or even the way that God is known by faith when we recite the creed, or even the way God is known as an object in the science of the sacred theology, at least not the science acquired by study. In other words, you could study the Summa and acquire the science with faith, even though maybe you're in a state of sin. Um, or, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's not, a, faith is not enough, in other words, to, to give us the divine indwelling. And that's principally what Thomas has in mind by the image according to grace. So in other words, you might say there's kind of two levels. There's a kind of a, uh, an imperfect level of the image according to grace, and then there's the more perfect level. Of course, that's all transcended by the image according to glory. So, the, again, the reason is it's with faith in the creed or the science of sacred doctrine, it's possible to have 
what's referred to as dead faith, that is faith that is not animated by love. If we have faith without love, the divine persons are not said to dwell in us and we do not fully participate in or imitate the divine life. Indeed, St. Thomas goes on in this article to say that sanctifying grace enables us to freely enjoy the divine persons, which is to say that we participate in the fellowship of the Trinity. There is one other point that is worth noting about the relation between sanctifying grace and the divine indwelling. In order to see how the image of God according to grace not only has the divine persons as objects dwelling in the soul, but also entails the soul being conformed or assimilated to the divine persons through the gifts that accompany sanctifying grace, namely wisdom and charity. But by wisdom we mean here sort of the wisdom that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So here is how St. Thomas puts it. The soul is conformed to God by grace. Hence, for a divine person to be sent to anyone by grace, there must be an assimilation of the soul to the divine person who is sent by some gift of grace. Because the Holy Ghost is love, the soul is assimilated to the Holy Ghost by the gift of charity. Hence, the mission of the Holy Ghost is according to the mode of charity. Whereas the Son is the Word, not any sort of word, but one who breathes forth love. Hence Augustine says, the word we speak of is knowledge with love. Thus the Son is sent not in accordance with every and any kind of intellectual perfection, but according to the intellectual illumination which breaks forth into the affection of love. As is said in John 6.45, Everyone that hath heard from the Father and hath learned cometh to me. And Psalm 38.4, in my meditation a fire shall flame forth. Thus Augustine plainly says, the Son is sent whenever he is known and perceived by anyone. Now perception implies a certain experimental knowledge, and this is properly called wisdom, sapientia, as it were a sweet knowledge, sapida scientia, according to Ecclesiasticus 6.23. The wisdom of doctrine is according to her name. Sorry, that's a long quotation, but I think what, what we see here in this text is that the divine indwelling presupposes an assimilation to the divine processions of word and love. So it's not just the object, but you have um, an assimilation that, uh, according to operation. Now, it should be noted that this assimilation is not by way of efficient causality, but by way of exemplar causality. While the love shed abroad in our hearts is appropriated to the Holy per sorry, while the love shed abroad in our hearts is appropriated to the Holy Spirit in the line of efficient causality, it is proper to him in the line of exemplar causality. So all three persons of the Trinity together function as the efficient cause of charity in the soul. But this operation is appropriated to the Holy Spirit because the gift of charity, which involves bringing forth a love in the soul, so that interior procession, the gift of charity imitates the divine procession of love. This, I think, is finally what Thomas means by the confirmation of grace in his discussion of the image of God. This helps manifest that the image according to grace builds upon the image according to nature. 
The objective union or indwelling of the divine persons presupposes the analogy of operation that, that we first saw in the image according to nature. So, let me conclude. St. Thomas's treatment of the soul as a mago Dei, and especially as an image of the Trinity, it's a complicated subject, both exegetically and doctrinally. Exegetically, because the various places where Thomas discusses the different levels of the Trinity, they have subtle differences. So we looked at some simpler ones, and then we turned to the one in the Summa. It's also dogmatically or doctrinally complicated because it requires a familiarity with the key points of Thomas's Trinitarian theology. While the principal aim of his teaching on the Imago is to instruct us about the dignity and perfection of man as made in the image of God, a better understanding of the Trinitarian theology that underlies his teaching on the Imago can give us a greater appreciation of the Trinitarian aspects of the creation and sanctification of 